Everyone test their mics. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Board of um, Multnomah County Commissioners Board Briefing. Commissioner Lori Stegman is excused. Audience members, I want to start by asking you to please silence your electronic devices. Today's meeting is a hybrid board meeting. Some presenters and guests will appear in person and some will appear virtually. For those presenting virtually, please mute your mic when not speaking. When presenting, make sure to unmute your mic and turn on your camera. For all presenters, please state your name for the record before speaking or responding to questions. And today's first briefing is on the fiscal year 25 general fund five-year forecast. So, and I welcome Christian Elkin and Jeff Renfo to the dais to start us off. Um, good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, for the record, I'm Jeff Renfro. I'm the county's economist. Um, I think we have some slides um, before we get going. Uh, if you want to go to the next slide, please, Stasia. Uh, so uh, a pretty normal agenda this morning. We're going to start with uh, just a little bit of the bigger picture macroeconomic stuff. We'll move into what it means for our financial um, picture here at the county, and then we'll go through the full five-year forecast and stopping at our one-time only funds and a reminder of our contingency available. Uh, next slide, please, Tasha. So I, I want to start with kind of the, the high-level theme that we're going to continue returning to throughout the presentation, which is our structural deficit. So um, this is our updated five-year forecast, and you'll see that there's a lot more red numbers than the last time we, we talked about this in the spring. Um, and we'll go through all of the reasons for that, but sort of the, the biggest reason is, is our structural deficit. And the way that we've talked about that in the past is it's the tendency for our personnel costs to grow faster than our property tax revenue over time under normal circumstances. Um, so right now, what we've incorporated into the forecast is impacts related to declining real market value, uh, and more importantly, a very low level of development that we expect to continue for the foreseeable future. And then we've incorporated an assumption that inflation, which dictates our cost of living adjustments for our employees, remains a little bit higher for a little bit longer. Another way to think about our structural deficit is every year we need over $30 million of new revenue just to continue to cover our current service level, just to stay at the same place. Um, in fiscal year 2026, um, we expect only $10 million of new property tax revenue. So if you look at the jump in the expected deficit between 25 and 26, if you're only getting $10 million of property tax revenue during, during that, you add nine or $10 million of new BIT revenue, the rest of our revenue sources just are not big enough to make up for the difference there. Um, and then we'll, we'll get into the specifics of property taxes. I think over the summer, there was a lot of media uh, coverage around concerns about a, an acute drop in our property taxes. Um, I think uh, 
we'll go through kind of how the what's happening in the real world in the economy flows through our assessment model and how it shows up in our revenues. But I, I think the takeaway here is that I am much, much less concerned about an acute drop in our revenues that we have to deal with sort of a big acute catastrophe all of a sudden. The bigger concern is the longer term impact where we're in a situation in which our assessed value growth is just very low for a long time. That puts us in a position where we're just cutting year after year after year. Um, the, the last thing I want to note before we jump into everything is the forecast that I'm showing you is a little bit different than what I pre-briefed all of you on. There was a, a late breaking change that I incorporated into the forecast at the end of the day yesterday and then right after we finalize this, there's another sort of offsetting late breaking change. So when we make both adjustments, um, it'll end up basically right back where you saw it. Um, so you're only seeing half of it right now. So yeah, unfortunate timing. Um, if we could go to the next slide, please. So um, at a very high level, and I'll show you a graph later in the presentation, inflation is moving in the right direction. This is great news for us. A high level of inflation over time is just like the one thing based on our property tax structure that we can't accommodate. So because inflation's moving in the right direction, there, we expect a little bit of relief on the personnel cost growth side in the near future. There was a recent job report that shows that at a national level, job growth is slowing. That's actually great news um, in kind of a perverse way. Uh, if, we, if we had consistently strong job growth like we'd seen in the past, the Federal Reserve would probably take that as a signal that they needed to continue to raise rates, which would probably push us into a recession. So the fact that the job growth is moderating means that the Federal Reserve is probably thinking about at least starting to uh, lower rates in the near future. The other piece of good news is that household incomes are still increasing, uh, real household incomes are still increasing. So um, Professor Jaya, or not Professor, excuse me, former Commissioner Jayapal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in a, a pre-briefing last year, sort of stopped me and said, the economic data is really weird, right? And I said, yeah, it's extremely weird. And, and it continues to be weird. So we're seeing on the household income side, really strong growth, which, which you would expect to be associated with sort of great economic news across the board. Um, and that is what continues to drive a high level of consumption, which is the, the driver of the American economy and to a large extent, the driver of the global economy is American consumption power. Um, so as the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, you would expect that to lead us towards recession, but people just continue to spend money and continue to support the economy. So um, the last set of, of briefings that we did, there was a lot of talk about what, what is the risk of recession. And what I said was, I think we are more likely than not to end up in a recession, but I would expect the recession to be pretty mild. Um, so now I think that is flipped to, I think we are more likely than not to not end up in a recession, but a lot of the stuff that's happening locally is gonna feel kind of recession-y. Um, so locally development is declining. Uh, local employment growth has really stalled. I'll show you a graph that shows that pretty clearly. And then there's been a lot in the news about the Bureau of Development Services laying staff off. That's directly related to a really steep drop off, drop off in permitting activity over the summer. For us, that's a leading indicator of what's going to happen to our property tax revenues. So right now we're kind of in the development trough that we expected to be in for a long time, but then our leading indicators suggest we're gonna sort of remain here for, for a long time. 
And then the bits of uncertainty that we'll return to today are around property values, specifically downtown, and then population growth, which kind of flows through everything that we do. So if we want to go to the next slide, please. So in order to have enough time to talk about property taxes, it's the only kind of fun uh, slide I'm going to have up front. <laughs> this slide is a, almost comically boring, uh, but it shows, it tells an extremely important story that's kind of the missing piece for a lot of what economists have been trying to work through the last few years. So this comes from the Survey of Consumer Finances, which the Federal Reserve puts out every three years. Um, the, this is based on micro-level household data. The report has all sorts of information, interesting information. I can share it with all of your offices. But what this shows is that um, between 2019 and 2022, uh, household incomes grew a lot faster than they typically do. And then the, the one on the right shows that household uh, net worth or household wealth also grew a lot faster over the, the last three years. So as, as everything was kind of disrupted by the pandemic, Economists were looking at the high level of consumption and just like people's ability to just continue to spend money. And we were looking at things like, um, you know, a very high level of savings on deposit in financial institutions. And we were saying, okay, looks like people still have money. I guess that's the, that's the reason why everything is still working. So this is kind of the first evidence that we have that, yeah, actually people's incomes grew at a really significant pace. This is implications for why our preschool for all and why the Metro supportive housing tax revenue has come in higher. To just put it bluntly, people got significantly richer during the three year period between 2019 and 2022. Um, there's another graph I cut at the last minute that shows that uh, income growth was particularly strong at the highest end of the income spectrum. Um, so if you wanna go to the next slide, please. This is a slide we always include. So this is our leading indicator of any sort of economic weakness. This is initial weekly unemployment claims. You'll see on the right, right side that it remains near historic lows. Uh, next slide, please. And then this is another slide we always show you. So this is the unemployment rate and then the level of employment for both Oregon and Multnomah County. I think the thing to note here is the two slides on the right, the level of employment. So both at Oregon and Multnomah County, it's, it's starting to level off up at the top. For the state of Oregon, it looks like it's leveling off at a level above the pre-pandemic level. Here in Multnomah County, job growth is really slowing down at a level that's about 13,000 jobs or about 2% below our pre-pandemic levels, which is a little bit concerning. And it may very well be tied to our sort of population issues. If you wanna to go to the next slide, please. So we'll jump into what this means for our us specifically. So I'm gonna talk a lot about property taxes, but I'll say in the current year, we're actually increasing the property tax assumption by uh, f about four and a half million dollars. That's due mostly to compression being lower than we expected. Um, I'll show you a graph in a second that I think explains that really well, but real market value is clearly about to turn over um, and it just hasn't yet. So there was enough real market value growth to lower compression. Um, business income tax, we'll talk about uh, in a little bit more detail, but we're not making any changes. Motor vehicle rental tax, um, we won't talk about more, so I'll say we, we've, our revenues have basically fully recovered. The underlying rental car activity is still below pre-pandemic levels, but prices have increased by enough to basically offset that. The adjustment we're making here is the board um, 
funded a compliance officer for Eric's team to increase compliance for motor, motor vehicle rental taxes and to help get some of the car share programs into the program. It has worked. The position has paid for itself 10 times over, so a good investment. So we're incorporating this increased revenue due to compliance. U.S. Marshall beds were making a reduction. We'll talk about that more later. And then um, recording fees, we're also making another reduction here. We've been reducing this over the last couple of years. Recording fee revenue is based on the paperwork generated by, <coughs> excuse me, by um, property transactions. It continues to be at a very low level. I keep expecting it to start to recover, um, but now we've updated the assumption to assume it does not recover at all until the end of calendar year 2024 when we expect interest rates to start to decline. And then the last adjustment down on the bottom, we're increasing our interest revenue. Um, out of all the adjustments we're making, this is the one that makes me the most nervous. Um, interest rates are a lot higher right now, so we're, we're just collecting more interest-related revenue. The last time we made an upward adjustment in our interest assumption was right before the pandemic, and it just instantly went away as interest rates declined. So um, I, I think it is appropriate to incorporate this into the ongoing forecast, but this is something that we're gonna watch closely and it could change really quickly. So overall, we're changing the current year forecast by a little over $9 million, which is about 1.3% uh, of our overall. As a reminder, our goal is to be within 2% uh, on our forecast. So if we wanna go to the next slide, please. So we'll talk about property taxes for a few slides here. So as a reminder, the red line on top is total real market value in Multnomah County. The bluish purplish line going through the middle is total assessed value. And then the orange line is the percent compression. So real market value um, continued to grow in the last year. When we dig down into the data, residential real market value was basically flat. Um, and then uh, commercial value had declined in the past, but it still went up in value in this last, last tax roll. I fully expect that to change um, for the next couple of tax rolls we see. And then assessed value growth, uh, it grew by over 7% this year. Almost all of that was associated with the interstate corridor URA returning its assessed value. We'd anticipated that, knew it was going to happen. The underlying assessed value growth when you remove that was only 2.5%. That's an extremely low level. That's what we saw after the financial crisis. So very concerning. Um, if we want to go to the next slide, please. And when we talk about um, property tax growth, really residential property value is over 60% of the total. Um, if you add multifamily on top of that, about three quarters of our uh, property value in Multnomah County is related to housing in some way. So um, as important as commercial property is, we would get really concerned if there was weakness on the residential side. So we're watching that closely. So this is the year-over-year -year change in the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. Um, you'll see that uh, both Portland and our comparable West Coast cities declined. Um, I think when you look at the level of decline, it's what you would expect um, when interest rates go up and houses become less affordable. You see an offsetting decrease in home values. Uh, the good news is that it's starting to reverse and we expect uh, home values to start going up. And actually Portland had a smaller downward adjustment than the rest of our comparable cities. So I think that the really good news here is that residential property value seems to be really resilient. Um, we're gonna continue to watch it closely. If anything changes, we'll start to get concerned. If we want to go to the next slide, please. So I'm going to get deeper into uh, our property tax system and the assessment model than I normally would, but I think it's important to kind of understand how all of this is working. 
So the first piece is a, is a reminder. Um, so in the past, I don't think I've ever talked about maximum assessed value. I just say assessed value and we kind of move on. But when we're calculating assessed value, it's actually the lesser of the maximum assessed value and your real market value. Your maximum assessed value is the value, it's the real market value of a property from 95, 96, less 10%, that can't grow by more than 3% per year. So just imagine a line slowly moving up kind of forever, right? For the vast majority of properties, maximum assessed value is the assessed value. So in the past, I just used those terms interchangeably. So prior to um, the most recent tax roll, downtown properties had some of the most skewed real market value and assessed value in the whole city. It's basically downtown, downtown commercial property and then residential property in North Portland are, are where it's the most skewed. Um, a typical AV to RMV ratio downtown was about 35%. So our concern now is that real market values for a commercial property falls by enough that real market value actually falls below the maximum assessed value line, and that can really quickly push assessed value down if that becomes the lower of the two numbers. Um, property tax is about two-thirds of our discretionary general fund uh, revenue, and that's the same for the city. So um, if we want to go to the next slide, please. So we've talked about in the past that property values downtown actually weren't falling very quickly, and that was because no one wanted to sell. So I think everyone knew that the buildings were worth significantly less than what they were listed on in the tax roll, but there weren't actually any transactions to set that, that new value. So this is really important because, um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I, I started meeting with Mike Vaughn and Jeff Brown in the assessor's office really regularly to just check in to start keep working through all of this stuff. And then over the summer, um, I met with my counterparts at the city and Metro and some economists from Echo Northwest. And we had just like a long discussion with, with Mike and Jeff Brown, just like getting super into the weeds on how the assessment models work. And so the key takeaway here is that the assessment model is based on market transactions, right? So the slower decline we've seen in the, the values in the model is due in part to a lack of market transactions. That's starting to change. There are starting to be some sales. Um, the other key point is that distress sales are not market transactions. So when you read about a building getting foreclosed and then it's auctioned at you know, 10 or 20% of the value that you would have expected in the past, that's not something that automatically flows into the model. The big caveat though is that if we go enough years where there aren't enough market transactions to, to feed into the model, then that will change and these distressed sales can start to be considered a market indicator. Um, so that's why we kind of ex expected what happened in the, the current year and in next year, but then as we start to get into 26 and 27, that could be, if we haven't already bottomed out, that could be where we start to see real market value go below assessed value. That could be where we see the uh, model actually being driven by some of these assessed, um, by some of these distressed sales. So um, in the newest tax roll, uh, there's about a 30% decline in real market value of downtown commercial property. This is likely going to be a multi-year process of incorporating these property declines. Um, and, and just to give you kind of a marker, um, uh, over the summer, I, I used a data set that was the assessed value and real market value of every single property downtown, and I modeled what would happen if we had sort of an instant 50% decline in our real market value. Because 
real market value and assessed value are so skewed downtown, it's only a $4 million impact um, for the county. Uh, and a lot of that is an increase in compression. At a 70% decline, that turns into a $10 million impact. Um, so, so like I've said, it, it's one of the reasons we're, we're sort of not as concerned about some sort of acute issue that we have to deal with. But if real market values decline by enough, even if they don't push into assessed value over the long term, it could create sort of a ceiling and maximum assessed value would run into it over time. Um, I, I think it's very unlikely that just across the board, all office space declines by that much. But I think it's likely that some types of office space will decline by 20 or 30%. And from a, a property tax revenue perspective, it won't really matter to us. And then other buildings will decline in value by 80%. And it's going to decrease the amount of property tax revenue that we get. So the specifics of how all of this rolls out um, is an unknown. And it's something that we're watching closely. If we want to go to the next slide, please. So as I said, we're, we're not making any changes to our BIT assumption, um, but this is the assumption that's in the forecast. As a reminder, the solid portion of the blue line is our actual BIT collections going back um, a couple of decades. The dotted portion of the blue line is our forecast assumptions. The red line was our long-term growth rate before the board um, uh, did the BIT reforms in fiscal year 2020. That orange line is my effort to recreate the long-term growth at the higher tax rate. So um, the first thing to note is that we had a decline in our BIT revenues in fiscal year 2023. That was anticipated. Um, I think when you look at that huge level of growth we had in fiscal year 2022, it was based on a record level of corporate profits. It looked like it was tied to some weird pandemic era stuff. We didn't expect it to continue and it did come down. The other thing to note is that the line shows our actual collections that we booked um, uh, last year. Th there's a, a weird issue where um, the city keeps a small amount of our BIT revenue in an account for us so that if there's a large refund that needs to be pay out, paid out, they always sort of have the ability to just, to just pay it. What that means, though, is that it can lead to um, uh, an amount of revenue that's transferred to us that's slightly different than what was actually collected. Last year, we started the year with an unusually high balance, and we ended the year with an unusually low balance, which makes it look like our BIT collections were better than they, they actually were last year. So even though it's showing another decline in fiscal year 2024, I expect actual collections to be, to be flat. Um, and then uh, if we want to go to the next slide, please. Um, we expect um, BIT revenue to start growing again. So this is a, a graph that looks at U.S. corporate profits pre-tax. Um, as a reminder, our, property our BIT collections are highly concentrated. About 10 companies are responsible for about 20% of the revenue. So this is really driven by very large companies and their, their level of profitability. Um, so you see the decline from the record levels, but it looks like it's evening out at still a very high level relative to historic standards. So we think that that drop has already been mostly incorporated into our collections last year. Um, because our quarterly payments are mostly backward looking, um, if we wanna to go to the next slide, um, I expect this to be running behind the level of collections we were at for most of the year this year. And then as we get into April, those payments will start to reflect the higher, the increasing level of profitability. Um, the red line 
does look very low right now, and a lot of that is related to um, we paid a very large refund in September, and it was just due to a company that made a mistake on its taxes last year, um, and then corrected the mistake, and the mistake and the correction just crossed fiscal years in a way that skews the, the, the numbers. If you want to go to the next slide, please. Um, so we'll talk about U.S. Marshall beds for just a second. So um, this is the average monthly U.S. Marshall bed usage going back for the last several years. Uh, that sort of teal blue line towards the bottom is last year's U.S. Marshall bed usage, and then the red line is the current year. So you can see um, about halfway through last fiscal year, there was a drop in U.S. Marshall bed usage. And then as we got into this year, um, it, it dropped even more to a level that was pretty unusual. So we've um, been talking to the sheriff's office about what they think is going on here. I think, I think there are some explanations, but we're still kind of in the process of figuring it out. We thought that there was enough data at this point to reduce our assumption. So our typical assumption um, is about 95 beds used on average every, every year, or used on average per day every year. We dropped that assumption in the forecast to 50. Um, I, I would say that this is a work in progress. So a drop from 95 to 50 is about a $3 million impact to the general fund. I, I can say we're gonna continue to work with the sheriff's office to better understand this, and we'll update our assumption as we have better or more data. If we want to go to the next slide, please. So um, moving on to the, the overall five-year um, view, the changes that we've incorporated into the forecast are things we've mostly already talked about. On the positive side, we increased our interest earnings assumption. Um, it basically starts off quite a bit higher, and then we expect it to decline as interest rates fall in the out years of the forecast. And then we made that motor vehicle rental tax adjustment we already talked about ongoing. On the negative side, our assumption around property tax assessed value growth is, is very low for the foreseeable future. And then um, we'll talk more about the personnel cost assumptions in just a second. And then we've incorporated the U.S. Marshall beds and the recording fee adjustments on an ongoing basis, and then incorporated a higher level of security costs due to a contract negotiation that happened recently. So overall, we expect, um, as I said, it's a $4.1 million deficit um, uh, on the, the list. Um, what, it'll come back down closer to three million when we make both sides of our, our late-breaking adjustments that grows over time. The other two things that are on there are SB 1145 ongoing funding gap and then the BHRC ongoing funding gap. So um, the board has not made any decisions around funding these on an ongoing basis, but we know that the issue is out there, so we wanted to put it here to make sure you had the appropriate context. Um, the contingency action we took in the current year to backfill 1145 was one time only. Um, so if we wanted to incorporate those expenses into the general fund on an ongoing basis, this would be the impact. And then the BHRC, the health department is working on finding alternative funding sources for this. Um, there just isn't a specific set plan. So if we wanted to um, fund the BHRC at the full planned level and that was needed to be absorbed into the general fund, this would be the impact. So if you add those two things, um, the 25 deficit is about $14 million. You want to go to the next slide, please? And then also skip this one. This is mostly just for reference, uh, in case any uh, people want to know every assumption we're making in the forecast. Next slide, please. Um, so then this is, this is the other side of our structural deficit. This is our assumptions around the increase in our um, personnel costs. 
Overall, we expect labor costs to go up by 5.7% in fiscal year 2025. That's a lot less than it was in fiscal year 2024 when we incorporated um, all of the adjustments due to our, our new labor contracts. Um, but it's still very high by historic standards. For us to be on a sustainable level, we need that much closer to 4%. Uh, a significant driver of that is our cost of living adjustment. We expect it to be 3.7% in 25. That extra 0.2 is due to a contract implementation issue for JCSS. Um, our step merit adjustment is also just a little bit higher than it has been in, in the past. And that's due to um, uh, our public safety departments have a lot of new employees. In the past, a lot of their employees were topped out, so they weren't getting those step and merit adjustments. Um, and now as they have new employees, it's just costing us a little bit more. Um, I, I want to note here quickly, um, this was another Commissioner Jayapal question in the past. In the spring, we had a question about how we calculate um, our step merit um, assumption. And the level of turnover in the county was kind of breaking our calculation. So we had a couple of departments who were able to cover their constraint in the past just with essentially their um, cost of their employees coming in lower than what was expected. So we, we incorporated a change to the methodology that factors in that, that employee turnover. And then due to some um, improvements in Questacar budgeting software, we've been able to validate that with the um, position costs that are going to be pushed out to departments. And we've ended up much lower. Um, I think the, the benefit of this change in methodology is that as turnover decreases, this turnover correction that we've incorporated will just sh shrink naturally over time. Um, our medical dental rate has increased, is, we expect to increase by 7%. That was the assumption in the forecast, so we don't need to make any sort of changes, but um, it is higher than it has been in the recent past. Uh, our PERS uh, is changing, it's a net change of 0.15%, but that's masking a reduction in our PERS bond rate and then an increase in our PERS rate from the state. I'll have a graph that shows that in just a second. Oh, oh, sorry, um, one more. Um, oh, sorry, back one more. That was uh, very unclear the way I said it. Thank you. Um, so uh, we expect our um, materials and supplies to go up by 3.7% along with our contracted services. And then our internal services, this is another place. Um, DCA is still working on finalizing this, so this is also a work in progress. But right now the assumption is that it goes up by a little bit more than 8%. Um, DCA is, we're mostly paying people to provide these services, so if personnel costs are going up more than usual, our internal service costs are going up more than usual. Um, and then this also, this is where the security costs flow through, so DCA charges those out to departments, which is one of the reasons for the, the higher increase. Um, the last thing I want to note here is that our liability workers' comp TriMet line, it's a pretty small increase. 0.05% um, of that is due to an increase in our li general liability insurance, which is tied to downtown property damage. Um, so that, that is showing up in our costs in a relatively small way now, but our, our insurance premiums are going up due to that. If we want to go to the next slide, please. Thank you. So this shows the year-over-year -year change in the CPI West Size A, which is the CPI measure that we use to calculate our cost of living adjustment. Um, you can see that it has declined a lot from its peak, um, which is good news for us. There was a little blip um, over the summer where it bumped back up to 3.7%. That was mostly due to energy prices, but it now appears to be on its way back down, and the expectation is that it continues to decline 
um, for the foreseeable future. If we want to go to the next slide, please. And then this is um, our assumptions around PERS rates going forward. So um, the two lines here are, the orange line is our tier one and tier, tier one and tier two uniformed rate. And then the blue line is our OPSERP non-uniform rate. So this is our highest and our lowest rate to give you a sense. The solid portion of the line is our actual rate we've incurred in the past. And it incorporates um, the PERS rate, the 6% pickup that we provide to employees, and then also the PERS bond rate that we collect internally. The dotted portion of the line is our assumption going forward. So you'll see um, in the next biennium due to um, uh, bad PERS per, uh, investment portfolio performance, we expect our rate to go up by 2.5%. I think this is actually going to be higher than it is for um, other jurisdictions because it's enough to start to uh, impact the return on our site accounts. So we've done such a good job of funding site accounts, um, but we're getting the, the hit to our rate and then also to our rate offset through the site accounts. Um, we currently expect the rate also to go up by 2.5% in fiscal year 2028. Um, I've talked about this in the past, but as a reminder, um, this is due to a rate offset that was due to um, uh, the surplus that we came into the state shared system with 20 years ago. Um, that rate offset is, is running out after 20 years. Um, this is something we, so we consider this a current law forecast. The PERS board is very aware of this. They're talking about solutions to this to, to um, smooth out that increase. So I would be very surprised if in 2028 we actually took this rate increase, but because there's no specific plan yet, um, we've incorporated it. The decline on the far end is when our PERS bond goes away, when we've paid all the debt service on it. So that's a 5.4% decline that, that amounts to about a $17 million savings in our general fund. So there's bad news in the five-year forecast, but if it was a seven-year forecast, we'd have some good news on the, the far end. Um, if we want to go to the next slide, please. Um, the next few slides are just a, a reference for you all. These are all of the things we funded with one-time only money in the current year. Um, so these are the things that we anticipate going away. Um, if there's anything on this list that you see that you think needs to continue, um, then that would have an impact on the forecast. Um, there's a few things here, like on this slide, um, a $14 million employee retention incentive payment. That was due related to the pandemic. That won't continue, obviously. If you want to go to the next slide, please, Tasia. Um, there's $17 million in rent assistance on this one. And then um, we've been very clear that our ARP money is going away. There's still some stuff funded in the current year with ARP. Um, so there, there are likely some pressures on our, our one-time only spending. If you want to go to the next slide, please. Um, and then go one more. And then one more again. There's a lot of one-time only uh, last year. Um, for one-time only for 2025, um, as a reminder, so for 2025, our one-time only is made up of three pieces. There's fiscal year 2023 departmental underspending. There is um, revenue coming in differently than what we had forecast. And then uh, in 2024, any forecast changes, we add that to our one-time only. So that top number, $49 million, um, that is the departmental underspending and then the 23 uh, difference from the forecast. Most of that, $36 million of that, is departmental underspending. That is less than it has been during the pandemic years, but it is still high by historic standards. 
Um, so you take that, you add on the $9 million of adjustments that we've already talked about earlier in the presentation, then I take away uh, $4.3 million to keep our reserves at the board policy level. That leaves you with $54 million. By board policy, we'd split that in half and have $27 million for um, facility and IT projects, and then $27 million to be allocated. Uh, next slide, please. This is a reminder of the contingency you still have available in the current year. We've incorporated the, the, chain, or the uh, decisions you've already made. Um, there's still $2.2 million of non-earmarked um, contingency available. And then in the earmarked contingency, um, there's a few balances there where you've already appropriated some of it for its intended purpose. The remainder of the balance, if the board chose to, could be allocated to something else. If we want to go to the next slide, please. Um, so we've talked about some of the risks, um, but I, th I think first and foremost is that even if um, inflation is moving in the right direction, the Fed has signaled that they expect rates to remain a little bit higher for a little bit longer than they'd originally anticipated. I think this is mostly a good story here, but the longer that rates remain high, the harder it is to, um, to invest and the more it hurts our local development picture. Um, Population is not something that directly, like on a short-term basis, impacts our revenues, but on a long-term, it has major implications for our revenues. Um, it would impact property values, the demand for development. Um, our BIT revenue is based on, so these large corporations who allocate out their profits based on a, a formula. Um, if our local population declined, then the amount of profit allocated to Multnomah County would decline, which would have an impact on our BIT. Um, so it's, it's very important in the long term. Obviously, downtown recovery and development. So we've talked about the implications for, for uh, Multnomah County as an organization, but also um, from a just broader economic perspective, it is hard for an urban area to be economically vibrant if you don't have a, a thriving city center. Um, that's also directly tied to population growth and, and all of that. And then, as I, as I stressed, um, residential property values are really the thing that we care about. Things look like they're going okay right now, but it's something that we're, we're watching closely. Um, if we wanna go to the next slide, please. So in summary, um, we're changing the forecast for the current year by $9.1 million. You still have $2.3 million of unallocated contingency available. We expect a deficit of $14 million in 2025. Um, that includes the SB 1145 and the BHRC adjustments, which obviously the board hasn't made any decisions on. That becomes a much larger deficit by the time we get out to fiscal year 2029. Uh, there's $54 million of one-time available. Oh, sorry, that should say 2025 general fund one-time only. I apologize. Um, you'd split that into our two buckets of $27 million each, and then we've already talked about the risks and uncertainties. If you wanna go to the next slide, please. This is our, we'll leave you with the, the timeline for the budget process going forward, and we'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. All right, thank you so much for, um, as always, a very thorough and informative um, general fund forecast for November. Um, we will go to the board with questions, and we'll start with Commissioner Myron. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, appreciate the pre-briefing that I received, and um, as always, your, um, just uh, brilliant ability to sort of uh, condense things and make them make them understandable to uh, regular people. Like <laughs> um, 
so I, I do have some questions, uh, some of which I brought up at that briefing, some of which are um, new today. But I want to start with a high-level question of in the, you know, at the outset of this presentation, you mentioned that, um, you know, household incomes and uh, net wealth grew faster than they typically do. You had mentioned that. And I'm curious, I, I know we have talked a lot about the divide that we see. It's household incomes for people who have relatively high household incomes to begin with, and we've seen those grow, but it's created an even greater divide with the people who don't have historically high um, high household incomes. Is, is, that a, is that true, or are we seeing that disparity widen, um, or is that sort of beyond the scope of what we looked at here? Yeah, we're absolutely seeing the disparity widen. And, and you know, I would argue that, you know, income inequality remains the defining economic issue of our time. Um, there was a, a graph that I, I sort of cut at the last second, partly because it was kind of ugly, um, that I'll, I'll share with all of you. But it shows the history of the, this Federal Reserve Report I'm drawing this information from. And it shows um, not only income growth, but sort of any type of measure of wealth that you could think of, how that's changed for households over time going back for decades. Um, and what you see is that um, real income has grown across the income spectrum, but it's a lot more modest at the, the lower levels. And then um, especially in the top decile over the last three years, um, income has gone up really significantly. So enough to widen that gap, I think yeah. is what you're saying. Wow. Um, I would love to see that slide, uh, but um, thank you. Yeah, greatest defining issue um, sums it up. So uh, our work is cut out for us, but um, I have now some more specific questions. And uh, just, you, we had talked about um, the U.S. Marshal um, uh, that there had been a bed usage decline, a substantial um, reduction in your assumption of the usage. And I, it's interesting because I had had conversations with the Sheriff and Corrections Health um, that occupancy of these beds were some of the greatest um, sort of expenditures of general fund dollars because often the U.S. Marshals are sending sort of their sickest patients or people um, who have the greatest needs, the highest level of health care, all that is funded by general fund because it's the jail, um, big problem. But the, that there had even been conversations about ending the contract completely with the U.S. Marshal because the cost of those people was so high that it made it not beneficial to be doing it. And I'd asked about whether there was consideration of that kind of offset. Um, like, could it be benefiting us to have a lesser assumption in Marshall beds because the offset from the costs would be, would be greater? I, I'm doing double net. I don't even know what I'm saying. But I think you understand what I mean, that um, is, is there that kind of consideration when you're making these assumptions? Yeah. So, um, so, so I think I think what what you're saying is, would we make an adjustment to our ongoing expense assumption related to um, providing healthcare in, in the jails? 
exactly yeah. what I was saying. Yeah. <laughs> and and if we um, if we had information that suggested that that was an appropriate assumption to make, we we would absolutely make that. I think we need to follow up with both the health department, get more information from the sheriff's office before we we make an assumption like that. But absolutely, we I mean we tell the departments on on every issue. If you have a reason to think that we're, we should be making a different decision, please provide the data and we're happy to talk to you about it. So. That's great. This one does seem structural because it's been, it has been ongoing for years now. So um, that's great. Uh, another, another question was about one-time only funds and in particular, you know, I, I think I've mentioned before, I, I feel like the county has more one-time only expenditures for things that feel not one-time only um, than I would expect to see. And um, it just consistently strikes me, maybe it'll be addressed in the budget audit, which will be next uh, on our agenda today. But the, you know, where I, one area where I see this is around the, the BHRC and, um, you know, it makes me think is a $3.35 million, uh, you know, cut that or difference that we see. You, you'd mentioned that the health department is looking for alternative funding sources. But in, in discussing this, it seems like it was very poor planning that, um, you know, this board did vote on, including myself, to. Um, to rely on some really some things we should not have relied on in terms of allocating those resources that it's saying oh measure 110 is going to give us money so we're going to which did not come to pass but that we're allocating money we don't have and that seems like a a problem um can you speak to that Good morning, Chair, Commissioners, Christian Elkin, Budget Director, I use she, her pronouns. So the $3.3 million gap that, that you're uh, referencing is actually uh, due to lack of commitment from state funds. So the state, as we were developing the BHRC, we were in negotiations with the state around how to fund this really needed resource in the community. Um, so the the county general fund that we have committed to the BHRC is ongoing general fund. We had to do one year of backfill because of the, the um, unexpected uh, inability of Measure 110 funds to come in and fund the program. And so we did use that two years ago. We had a backstop just like we did with the uh, SB 1145 funding this year is that when we identify a risk, we create um, you know some kind of backstop if it is available. But we also want to recognize that in a lot of these programs, we are in partnership with the state or other partners, and so that we need to make assumptions about their commitments based on what they're telling us. And so we make those assumptions. If we think they're riskier assumptions, we will put some funding in the general fund contingency. So we did that on the county side related to Measure 110 because it was so brand new. We did not know how they were going to allocate that funding, and we didn't know what criteria they were going to use, but we did know we were putting forth a really important program for them to fund. And there was you know, obviously a lot of churn around those decisions that were made by the state. Going forward, we have ensured that there's the county general fund commitment is ongoing for the BHRC. 
the piece that is still one time only in nature and is presenting a risk for us is the funding from the Oregon Health Authority. And so we're raising that to you all just like we did with the 1145 funds around public safety to identify where that risk is. We hope we can continue to negotiate with our partners and that they'll see the value and really find the funds for those really important programs. But I think we would not be doing our job as the budget office if we weren't raising where some of these bigger risks um, and uncertainty is around some of these funding sources. I think that's super helpful. Um, it raises the question for me if, so is this 3.3, have we continued to, for the 3.35, the $3.3 million gap, we have, con we're making those assumptions, how many times have we made that assumption more than once or is it the, it was, that particular time and now we're raising it um, because it's going to continue to be an issue. I think it's a continuing conversation and I would, um, okay, I, I don't think I'm the appropriate person okay. to speak to that. I think we would really need to talk to the health department about yeah. what that looks like with the Oregon Health Authority. And I, I just um, would imagine that in addition to thinking about cost cutting, so, or uh, thinking about finding alternative funding sources, how we streamline um, or do different programs or do things more efficiently so that even if we don't, we need to plan in case we don't get that funding. And I think that's the point of us bringing yeah. it up now at the beginning of the budget process is yeah. to identify that so that the commissioners are able to engage in that robust policy discussion. Thank you. And I just had two more very brief questions. Very brief, yeah, we, I wanna make sure everybody okay. has a chance to get their questions answered. Um, one one was just addressed that you, you'd mentioned, it was a comment that I, I wanted to sort of highlight and I think that warrants just further conversation is the level of turnover at the county is essentially breaking our calculation. That's that's a significant statement and I, I feel. And um, not just from an accounting standpoint, so there's so much turnover, it's breaking our calculation, we have to calculate differently, but what are we doing about the underlying turnover? Because that's, that's um, foundationally um, an issue I think we should be discussing as a board. Um, and then liability insurance, you'd sort of alluded to that. And you'd mentioned damage to buildings that we've seen for, um, but what about, where does the liability insurance fit in in terms of damage to um, units like and buildings for places that people are placed into that they might not be appropriately placed, it might ma not match level of needs, because we hear from our um, organization, our contracting organizations, they're becoming uninsurable because of the level of damage caused because of these placements. Is that insurability or insurance on us as a county, or is that on the organizations we contract with? I'd have to defer to Eric uh, okay. on that one, okay. and, and we can we can follow up with Eric on that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, and right. I, I will just say from my conversations with those partners, it's on it's on them because those are their facilities, those are their things. I think the reference to the um, the downtown property damage are on county-owned buildings where we have had property damage. Okay, that's helpful. Um, two things to put on the back burner: the forty-nine million dollar underspend. I would really like to discuss more because that does seem substantial and I'm wondering if we could get a breakdown of that yes. and then just economic vibrancy in general how important that is I'm glad you alluded to that because 
so often we think of the city as like the business and downtown and we're in other neighborhoods. Um, in reality, it really impacts all of what we do at the county because that's where we get our, it, it, get our, it directly impacts us with the property values and, and so it's on all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Beeson. Uh, thank you so much for the presentation. I had uh, two, two, maybe three boring questions. So the, on the maximum assessed value, um, less 10%, that's not forever. That was only at the 1995 numbers, meaning if the real market value goes d uh, drops below the assessed value, that doesn't trigger a 10%. It's just back from 1995. Yeah, so um, so the the maximum assessed value, if if you imagine that line just increasing by three percent, truly just forever, yeah. um, what what can happen? And this did happen to some residential properties in the financial crisis. Is real market value will dip below that line, and then that dipping real market value becomes the assessed value. But then when it increases again and it crosses the line going the other way, then maximum assessed value becomes the assessed value again. Okay. So, so what happened is there, there were some homeowners who got a surprisingly large increase in their property taxes as real market value started to recover because it could go up as much as the real market value did before it hit maximum assessed value and then slowed back down. Okay, thank you. And then, um, so our concern about residential property values is, is it, more about ongoing development and those new developments adding to the residential property tax income or is that because it seems like measure 5 and 50 made that three percent pretty predictable can you yeah so it, it is both um so on the development side the way that we get our you know total assessed value growth which is what we really care about above three percent is is mostly development um so if there's a a slowdown in commercial or residential development that slows our overall assessed value growth. Um, if we, um, the, the piece I was referring to for residential property values is we're having this whole discussion about downtown property values. If we were in a situation in which residential property values were declining enough to kind of have that same conversation about busting through our maximum assessed value, um, we'd, we'd be in a really different position. Um, so, so I think what I want you all to take away from it, from the discussion is, you know, the, the vast majority of our, our property value is related to residential properties that have had a decline in real market value, but even those properties are so skewed, we need a really significant decline to be in the same position we are with our downtown property values. So I, I would expect it to just continue to take up by 3% indefinitely. Okay. And then one other quick question. Um, do uh, Rust Belt cities or other shrinking cities give us any, um, do their practices on assessment give us any insight into things we should be uh, uh, prepared to change in the next couple of years? That's, that's a great question and I'll try to answer briefly instead of like talking about this for an hour. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think, you know, my take on is, is what's happening in Portland. How does that, uh, how is it similar or different than like Rust Belt City in decline? And you know the the thing that we are we are missing from that equation is there hasn't been like a 
global change in the economy that makes uh, an industry that we're reliant on, you know, unprofitable to operate in that that city. So, so I think that that's the really significant difference. Okay. But then. I know the city of Detroit right now is is considering going to a land value tax, mm-hmm. um, which um, is is one of those things that makes a ton of sense on paper. The transition from our current system to a land value tax would be really difficult, um, and we could talk about that all day if we wanted to. Um, but I, I think I think in, in my role, I try not to like have an opinion about stuff. But one of the opinions I I feel free to express is that our property tax system, even before all of this, didn't make a lot of sense in a lot of ways, and it's inequitable, and it makes it hard for governments to to operate. So I think if this is an impetus to look at how our property tax system works, I would say, great. Um, We could make a lot of changes that I think would improve it. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Brim Edwards. Thanks for the presentation. and just thinking about sort of the current year and future year impacts, uh, I had a couple questions. Um, but maybe before I start with that, just a sort of framing question. So certainly what you've outlined this morning is the impacts on Multnomah County, um, but also as the, um, given the Multnomah County property taxes are the foundation for lots of public services. I'm assuming that similar presentations are um, potentially being provided to other, um, not from us, but from to other public entities that rely on the property tax, um, because th- there wouldn't be dis- disparate impacts, yeah, because um, Multnomah County, as the uh, sort of tax collector, we have uh, one impact, but obviously um, our property tax collection system impacts a lot of other public entities. Um, so question about this, this particular year and sort of what we're seeing and then how we're adjusting. Are there any departments that currently are working under any direction toward creating additional ending year balances, constraints, or program delays um, as an effort to make sort of mid-year adjustments or in anticipation of what what we're seeing economically? Um, Commissioner, as a practice at the county, we have not done that kind of like mid-year adjustment for the future year forecast because we need programs to deliver the outcomes that they have told you in the budget that they're going to deliver and so um, we are working on some you know the some of the budget monitoring and the tracking and some of that information in the past we've only done that and i uh, if we had to cut the the current year because our revenues have dropped so significantly and then that that would inform the future year and the future year forecasts um it's, it's really hard for departments to think that they're going to be running a program and then come in and ask them to make even, you know, kind of these like what I would call paper cuts along the way. And so that doesn't give them a planning process to think through all of that. And really, um, it, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. So I, I would say, Keeping that in the planning process of the budget process is going to be more intentional and get you better outcomes. Um, if we came back and you know we're going to have two more forecasts, and so if we came back in March and the BIT all of a sudden was you know took one of these big dives that we've seen before, 
um, we would probably have to be signaling that we would need to be doing something different, and that would be pretty emergency mode for the county, uh, which I don't expect us to be in. So I, I would really, um, we would need to think very intentionally about what that process is trying to deliver to the, to the board, and then what those impacts are and how they reverberate through the county. Um, so I have a comment and then just one, one other question. Um, my comment would be um, having um, worked uh, both in large institutions and large um, public entities is I think it's worth thinking about whether um, that that is just given the um, this isn't as um, you said not a, an acute um, or not the acute situation but a longer term, um, but I do think it's worth thinking, like, do we want to do things as we've always done it, or is there some value of looking at things mid-year? Um, having been in an entity in which there was the acute situation and you had to make massive cuts, um, that often when you have to make massive cuts in reaction to an acute um, revenue drop um, that you the the cuts are actually less efficient um, and you cut things that um, in a way that are very hard to rebuild so thinking of that that that's not a, a great practice to do, to do um, and that the oftentimes looking at mid-year put putting in place restraints allows you to make things smarter and pri more prioritized cuts versus we have to make across the board you know big cuts and so just thinking about um, I think it's worth we're talking about is like is that something um, that we do to so it you s sort of smooth out the, the cuts versus then having a big a big drop um, it's just something I think worth considering so you know positions not being filled um, do we want to start a new program do we want to prioritize you know positions that are filled um, so I just think that's a good conversation for us to have if that's the long-term forecast that we're heading into this um, glide path um, that is we're going to have le less revenue or less than, than we not less revenue but less growth I guess in revenue to meet our ex our increase in expenditures um, so the, the, my, my second question is also another sort of budget related question and just thinking um, ahead is are there departments that are, um, and this falls in that same category of the question I just asked, but are there departments that more, um, are more fit to apply an across the board constraint than others? And are there departments that are more um, appropriate for, so like this program we shouldn't be starting or we should be exiting out um, just from a prioritization standpoint versus doing an across the board so I'm kind of looking at historical uh, perspectives because, again, I think sometimes across the boards, um, cuts or things that are delayed um, tend to actually um, blunt the prioritization of the most important things um, because everybody takes it takes a cut versus this this is core to our mission and we know we have to deliver this and this is a, this is more of a nice to have. Uh, thank you for the question. So uh, the chair provides guidance and that will be coming out in December along to all the department directors around how to approach the priorities of the county and how to think about that. 
Uh, we've never submitted uh, instructions to the departments to take across the board cuts. So we have submitted that we have to make reductions. This is the targets that each department has. And then we really ask them to do that first kind of approach of using your kind of knowledge and best practices and understanding of the services that you provide as the department and the department leaders to provide the chair with a plan of why you're you know, signaling that something needs to be reduced. So you, we agree with you that doing the across the board is not an approach that makes a lot of sense. We want them to look at outcomes, who they're serving, what the county's you know, priorities are, what the department's priority are, and then how do we ch achieve those outcomes, and then to really put their reductions or even um, ads in that same framework, right? And so that we're, that that first kind of attempt or that first submittal by the departments is really a prioritized best thinking approach, not a just, well, we can, you know, we can just take 2% off of every single program and hope that that works. In addition, I think it's really important that, you know, the general fund is a significant portion of some departments and, and programs, but also they're also having to factor in, especially in our health and human services, the funding constraints or additions from our state partners and our federal partners. And so they're having to take all that information in and then make those adjustments. So while our public safety departments are primarily general funded, they're operating in a, you know, in a different set of rules than our, our health and human service partners who really do have those other funding sources that have to be considered as they're making those decisions. I had one, one last question, and this is more of a, just a very targeted uh, question versus a broad brush, and I appreciate um, the answer. I'm looking forward to that forecast, and, and I do think um, I would encourage us to have a, um, a conversation about um, what we can do this year to that, that may um, make things, the constraints less, um, or allow us to better prioritize our, our budget. I think it's a good conversation. Uh, but my really specific question is, um, do we know why, and this is to the conversation or the slides relating to the U.S. Marshals, do we know why the U.S. Marshals are using less beds? We would have to defer that to the Sheriff's Office. Okay, so there's not else. Yeah. Thank you. All right, thank you. I will say um, I appreciate the forecast. I think it's really important for the board to receive this information at this stage, especially considering um, the, um, the slower growth that we're anticipating through ours and the fact that we are continuing to have growth in expenses. We knew that there was gonna be a structural deficit, you know, basically built in um, many ways. We had some, um, I think, um, previously with some of the um, TIF funding, ending we had we had a little bit of a reprieve from that but as we um, are choosing to invest in our employees as we're choosing to make investments over the long term and recognizing what's happened along um, with the economy overall here it definitely has impact so um, for me as we take a look at um, what is happening here you know we know um, during the pandemic and in the past year we've made really important and historic investments to make sure that we were able to meet the challenges that were faced by um, by people we were very intentional I think in the areas that we chose to invest at and even in the last year's budget looking at um, things that were still being impact, um, impacted even, you know, I'm putting this in quotes, but post-pandemic as we were looking at levels of gun violence, as we were looking at mental health needs, as we were looking at um, the increased needs for um, responding to some of the um, 
some of the needs with our with our um, families, for instance. We were, you know, that was, I think, some intentions that we had to continue programs as we were looking to see. We are seeing changes, right? We're seeing changes in a decrease in the level of gun violence. So I think as we are looking at those um, ARP dollars or those one-time only dollars that were used, we are, as a board, going to have to be thinking about what are those. And that's something that I will, um, as the chair, um, you know, be working with the departments on as we're putting together um, the budget for, for this upcoming year. But I think this gives us a really important you know, frame to be doing all of that work. Um, you know, I really um, think that we have to, though, this is like the time where we have to be thinking about our fundamental services that we provide both in our, our safety net system, in our, um, in our public safety systems and the commitments that we have as a county, like legal commitments that we have, obligations that we have to the state um, to be doing the work that we are and, and recognizing where that comes in. Um, so. Um, we are going to be um, giving out budget direction to the departments. That is a really important exercise, Commissioner Brim Edwards, for them to really start the process of looking at their own programs and services and prioritizing um, what they want to continue, what, what um, they might want to grow or things that they want to start, and, and really starting that. So the guidance that will be coming out in a couple weeks will be um, very important for that. So I appreciate all of the time that you um, have put together for this presentation. Uh, Jeff, looking forward to the additional information that you're going to be um, spending and um, really is helpful as we're prioritizing the next steps for how we are going to be planning for next year and being good stewards of taxpayer money. So thank you all very much. Um, we are going to move on to our next board briefing. Um, and I want to welcome up Auditor McGurk for that. Um, and um, I want to thank Auditor McGurk and her team for being here today to take us through their findings regarding our budget process in the, um, in the audit. I appreciate that our auditor shares um, my desire to make sure that the budget process at Multnomah County meets the needs not only um, of the decision makers, but also of the county staff and of all of, our, all of our community members, um, all of whom care deeply not only about what we budget, but how we create a budget that serves us all. I know that we, I mean, we were just talking about budget. We build the budget and prioritize alongside many partners, many departments who share in our investments and who care deeply about them. So we have to continue to make our process more inclusive, more thoughtful, more equitable. Um, and so I'm really glad that we had this um, recommendations coming from the auditor um, as we're kicking off our FY25 budget process, as we're aligning our discussions, the recommendations, the best practices for how we meet the needs of Multnomah County in this, in this moment. Um, I'm also pleased that as a part of the county's ongoing process improvements, we're looking at how to more deeply integrate our annual budget survey into this year's process, which is about enhancing our performance metrics, working on better budget to actual reporting, and finalizing a more robust, robust plan for community engagement. I think these and the other um, uh, efforts that are going to be discussed today are really our best tools in bringing forward a budget that truly connects to our community's needs and the um, top priorities with the investments that we as a county can make. So um, thank you so much, Auditor McGurk, for being here today, and I'm really happy to have this presentation. Uh, thank you, Chair and Commissioners. I appreciate that introduction. I'm Jennifer McGurk, the County Auditor, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm very pleased to be here this morning with Mark Yulanowicz and Shura Sumare, who will uh, provide results from our audit of the county's budget process. And without further ado, I will pass it over to Mark and Shura. Good morning. Good morning, Chair and Commissioners. Um, I am Shura Sumare, 
I use he, him pronouns, and I'm a management auditor with the auditor's office. Mark, okay. can I introduce yourself? No, okay. All right. Um, according to the county's fiscal year 2023 budget director's message, a good budget tells a story about an organization that is not captured by the financial statements. It describes what is important to the organization, how it funds its, its mission and vision, and how it provides value to the community. In just physical year 2022, there were more than 600 program offers, ranging from $20,000 to more than $436 million. Next slide, please. Multnomah County, like other governments, allocate resources to programs and services that reflects its vision, strategies, and priorities through the budget process. This process is arguably among the most important things governments do. So how we did this audit, or why we did this audit, we assessed how transparent and understandable the budget process is to the community members. Next slide, please. Looking at this visual, the county's budget is this big pamphlet that is sometimes scary looking when you first see it, but that shows how detailed the budget is. Multnomah County develops its budget using a complex and time-consuming process. Where departments create individual budgets for programs in their portfolios called program offers. The budget process takes about eight months, that is from November to June the following year, Work in the budget officially begins each November, where the, uh, the central budget office's general fund revenue forecast. The entire process must be concluded by the end of June the following year. At more than $747 million, the general fund is the county's largest source of unrestricted funding and is primarily made up of money collected from property taxes and the business income tax. Next slide, please. We based our research for this audit on the Government Financial Offices Association's best practices. And those best practices emphasized the development of the budget, the justification and approval of the budget, the ex execution and accountability in the process. Next, please. Again, two more. Many components of the budget process are consistent with the best practices we looked into, um, such as the budget, the Multnomah County's budget is detailed and well advertised. The budget has strong financial policies the process is robust, 
the financial forecasting process is robust. But the county falls sh short of best practices in two important areas. Next slide. Again. Um, the first part that the county falls short on is financial monitoring. Um, the financial system is not set up to report budgeted compared to actual expenditures on program offer basis. This means that the county does not publicly report how much it actually spends at the program offer level, the level at which the Board of County Commissioners makes budget decisions. Um, in the aspect of community engagement, um, the community does not have much impact in the process. The county has a multi-part multi approach to community engagement, but the complexity of the budget process and the short timeline available for community involvement limit the potential for impactful public engagement in the budget process. I will let Mark give us more details. Thanks, Shira. Uh, I'm Mark Yelanowitz with the auditor's office, and I use he, him pronouns. Um, before getting into too many more details about the financial monitoring, uh, we need to talk a little bit about how this, what the systems are that are involved. The budget's made up of program offers that reflect planned revenues and expenditures for specific programs and are developed and organized in a system called Questica. When programs take in revenue and spend money, they keep track of this activity in cost centers in the county's accounting system called Workday. When program offers in Questica do not align with cost centers in Workday, it's very difficult to routinely report on how much money is spent compared to how much is budgeted for a particular program. As a result, county departments and divisions rarely report this information. Next slide, please. The figure in this slide shows program offers in green on the left and cost centers in blue on the right from some programs within the Department of Community Justice. And we do want to say that we're not singling out DCJ. This is just a really great example of the sort of thing that we've been seeing. If you, if you find this graphic confusing, you're not alone. That's kind of the point. Um, in this case, it illustrates that there isn't a direct relationship between program offers with multiple program offers being accounted for in one or more cost center. In one case, there are five program offers moving into one cost center. Reporting on spending for one of these individual program offers would require disaggregating all the spending accounted for within that cost center. Now, we're not saying that nobody knows how much is being spent on individual programs. Program managers are going to know that. It just can't be monitored centrally and isn't being reported, which impacts transparency. Next slide, please. Community engagement in the budget process is also a critical component of a high-functioning budget process. Community engagement, especially for something as complicated as the county's budget, is very difficult. The county puts a lot of effort into it and uses a multi-pronged approach including direct outreach to community groups, the creation of community budget advisory committees to provide input for individual departments, and discussions with community partners who work with the county. 
The slide shows some of the community involvement best practices identified by GFOA and the extent to which the county meets or does not meet the best practices. We found that the complexity of the budget process and the short timeline available for community input on the budget limit the potential for impact the community could have on the budget. While a lot goes into community engagement efforts, it's not clear how much impact community engagement has on the budget and its priorities. Two significant pieces of the county's efforts, CBAC input and public hearings on the budget occur either right before or right after the release of the chair's proposed budget, making it difficult to incorporate input into budget priorities. Next slide, please. The graph in this slide shows the median number of days between the CBAC recommendations for their respective department's budget and the release of the chair's proposed budget. In this example, that, that four out of the five last, ye last years, four out of the last five years, excuse me, these recommendations have come into the chair fewer than 10 days before the release of the chair's budget. It's difficult for these recommendations to have a significant impact in such a short time. Next slide, please. So based on the work of the audit and to address the shortcomings we've identified, the auditors made the following recommendations. To improve transparency, the central budget office and chief financial officer should develop an administrative procedure requiring all county departments to report to the board of county commissioners at least once each fiscal year on revised budget to actual expenditures at the foundational unit of the county's budget, which is currently the program offer level. Also to improve transparency, the Board of County Commissioners should develop a policy requiring departments to report to them when they intend to make expenditures in a way that the board defines as materially different than how they propose to spend the program in the program offers. The chair should direct the central budget office and departments to engage community budget advisories committees earlier in the budget process and provide them with information sooner so their comments have more time to be addressed with the release of the chair's proposed budget. And finally, the Board of County Commissioners should study whether the county should budget on an annual or biennial process and report on the results of the study. Areas to study could include potential impacts and community involvement in the process, budget inputs and outcomes, and monitoring of adopted to actual <coughs> expenditures. These recommendations are due at the end of September next year. Next slide, please. So we're happy to answer any questions about this audit, and we've included links to the audit report on our website, which includes uh, contact information. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Appreciate this, um, the budget, and we'll go to the board for questions. We'll start with Commissioner Beeson. I have um, two questions. So um, you all raised the idea of potential two-year budgets, um, and I can't imagine that conversation hasn't happened in the last two decades regardless, but have, has that conversation happened to the best of your knowledge? And then I and maybe um, maybe this is a, a better question for the budget director, but um, the given the potential expanded community role or community engagement in a two-year budget process, but then balancing that with what Commissioner Brum Edwards was raising about uh, 
dealing with more uh, short-term uh, budgeting um, acuities. I, I guess I'm just wondering how you, how do you balance those kinds of um, uh, considerations and, and did that come up in your audit? Uh, thank you, Commissioner. To the first question, I don't think we can answer that. That might be a better question for the budget office as to whether that conversation has happened before. Um, there are certainly a host of trade-offs if you move to from a one-year to a two-year budget cycle. And there are some really good, uh, there's great literature out there about those trade-offs that we could certainly uh, point the commission to. Uh, I don't know if my colleagues would like to add anything to that. That's about it, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so, uh, second question um, was about, no, I've forgotten my second question. We can come back to you if we Thank need you. to. Thank you. Commissioner uh, Burm Edwards. Great. Thank, thanks for um, the audit and the recommendations. Um, I know this will um, improve our practices and um, my questions maybe are less for you, but, but also, but more for, um, I guess, just the, impl the implementation um, of, of the practices, because I know you've made a series of four recommendations, and so I want to just go through the recommendations, and maybe this is more questions, again, for um, management uh, versus um, in, in their response. So typical um, audit practice, there's a set of recommendations and uh, findings, and then a management response. Um, and the first recommendation is around um, that once a year, there be at least uh, each fiscal year on a revised budget to actual expenditures at the foundational unit of the county budget. And this is something we brought up earlier, and I think my very first uh, county commission meeting, I inquired about whether we had budget to actuals, because I've always found that um, in sort of 30 years of working with large in institutions, um, it allows you to up-level, not get down into the sort of the the minutia, um, uh, but really to like, where are we trending? Are we sort of on, on track with our expenditures or off track? And then given the fact that um, this past year, um, we had two areas of a pretty significant underspend um, in pri priority areas, um, the supportive housing services um, budgeting, but then also in the preschool for all. So I'm very supportive of the once a year uh, moving to, uh, once a year recommendation actually, but best practice would, would have it be quarterly. And so um, I, I'm gonna be a big advocate of more than once a year, although that was the, recommend, the recommendation was once a year and that was agreed to and we're shifting to that and I know there's all kinds of um, issues with our um, actual systems to make that happen. So I'm glad it's, we're gonna be, shifting to a, a dashboard that has has that um, information this year, but I would hope that um, we would try and implement, the, implement that for the budget categories that are um, large budget categories where we've seen under or overspending in a significant, in a material way. And again, this allows us, to, the commission to up level to the most important um, budgets and areas of expenditures versus getting down to, you know, a very sort of, uh, granular level. Um, so I would hope that <coughs> would be possible. And um, curious, is that um, a at the chief operating officer level or is that 
budget or finance or a multi-department effort to make, would make, make that happen. To get a budget to actuals presentation? Well, no, to, to have it be more than once a year and I'm noticing the, in the management response that we'd be, that um, the county is going to have a dashboard in place this year, but with limited data in it. And I'm curious whether we could accelerate that, especially given the previous presentation around <coughs> expenditures coming in. And then the fact that last year we had uh, two categories where um, it would have been useful to have um, more timely information on sort of on tre trends. Yeah, so there there was actually also a budget note last year about getting um, working on budget to actuals report. There are some technical considerations, like in terms when you were talking about accelerating, there's some technical considerations between like our two different software systems that actually have this. And Christian, do you want to come down and talk about the work that's underway and what we're expecting from the um, chair? If I could the, ask if there are additional questions for our team, should we do do you want to do those first and then we can clear the whole table and move on to the questions for the department? I mean, because her yeah. question is definitely going my to question be. Is yeah. for, so my, I don't really have, I don't have any questions for the auditors. Okay. I want you to thank you for work because I think this actually will help us um, more effectively spend the resources we have and um, do it in a more transparent way. So I don't have any questions for you other than just to thank the team that put the time in and made the recommendations. Okay, great. And then Commissioner Myron, do you have questions for the auditors team? Okay. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And I also, I also um, just had a couple questions for, for you. I also have a lot of um, gratitude for this. I will say one thing for me is when you were looking at the public engagement, did you take a look at the role of the Tax Supervising and Conservation Commission that they play with our county budget process? Because I was really fascinated to know that we have this system in Multnomah County where we, you know, we present to them, they go through our budget, they interview, and they, you know, um, talk with departments. And, but in other areas, they actually do more of a citizen, you know, participation in the budget and that, and, and there's just a different, you know, there are different ways in different jurisdictions. So I was curious how, if you looked at that role. We did, and we had several conversations with them, um, and we talked with people about their relationship with them. We talked to uh, not only the staff, but also uh, a member. And uh, it, it is, it is from what we can tell, a pretty unique aspect with, with their specific statutorily mandated role in our process. Um, it's, they have a lot of work to do. And so the extent to which they can get really deep into it is is somewhat limited. But it, it we did talk to them, and it, it's a really valuable piece. Yeah, that's great. And then the question that I um, the and then I had another question about the um, the recommended you know the you know you use the DCJ thing. Um, did you take a look at how area like? Um, recommendations for like a best practice when there are multiple funding sources because I think that's also the thing that you know we, we need to recognize that there might be you know multiple funding sources paying for certain um, program program offers even at the program level right I, I think it's really important when we talk about how the accounting systems are set up compared to the to the to the budgeting system that the departments are setting this up in a way that makes it most efficient and best for them to report you know, financial reporting. Um, the fact that it doesn't necessarily always align 
um, well with program offers is, is an unfortunate byproduct of it. So, and I, I do want to say that we singled out DCJ for um, that particular example, and like I said, it's not that they do anything particularly complicated, um, but they also do a really good job of reporting. Um, a, have a tremendous uh, spreadsheet, I don't know if it's, a, if it's kind of a tableau or a, a uh, interactive spreadsheet that allows someone to go in and look at budget to actual in several categories for any particular cost center. So, the, I, I, and this is kind of getting uh, to Commissioner Brim Edwards' question is, is kind of how far away we are. I think in some departments are actually pretty close. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that was really helpful. I appreciate that. I, I just wanted to see how you had like, taken a look at it and looked, you looked very closely, yeah. so I appreciate that. Yeah, Thank yeah. You. Thank you. Uh-huh, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious in terms of the, just the program offer nature of our budget, the 600 plus ranging from 20,000 to 400 million plus, is that, is that a typical way that budgets are done for um, similarly situated organizations? I think the short answer is no. I think that the level of granularity in our budget process, while maybe not unique, um, is certainly kind of more involved than most jurisdictions. Thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate this so much, and I'll just, I know we have questions, so Christian, I know we'll, we'll get to you in a second, but I just wanna say I really appreciate the budget. I think for me, um, looking, you know, coming into this role as chair, two of the things that I was very, I'm really excited about, one is being a part of the, the pre-January budget process where I think that there is an opportunity and, and really a requirement from the chair's office to do a lot of community engagement as the chair and, and, and my team is looking at putting together our budget. So that's a plan that um, we've created and something that we will be doing and also like better aligning the CBAC process to, to help inform that. So I really appreciate these recommendations. It was a, 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 a part of the process that I felt like I missed out on just because of the calendar last year. Um, and then also the, the work that we're doing around mission, vision and values and really looking at our priorities as a county, the work that we're doing, and how that then I think should inform our budget and 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 even our budget process of like that we're driven by our, our values and our priorities that in deep work that we've done on that. Um, because I, you know, and I, I know my um, fellow commissioners have said some similar things over the years, but the, the, the budget, um, the program offers themselves are not always satisfying in terms of information we may wanna know. And then to hear that like really, there's a granularity that's included in there that's that's at a deeper level than we see other places that may mean like, you know, we probably need to have a really big look at like, what information does the board want and need to have? And then also how can we make sure that we're aligning our budget um, process and system in a way that's actually providing the, the right financial level of detail and information for the for us as well. So thank you so much for this, appreciate that. Thank um, you. Thank you. And then Commissioner Brim Edwards, if you wanted to ask Christian your question. Did you have, you have my first question? I do have your first question. Um, for the record, Christian Elkin, County Budget Director, I use she, her pronouns. I'd also like to thank the auditor. We spent a lot of time with them. They really, um, really were attentive to understanding the dynamics of not only the budget process, but also the, the data systems that are involved and you know, 
where we had um, some hurdles and some things that we needed to to make like significant changes to the core data and the way that we're reporting the data. Um, so, but back to your original question around budget monitoring. So we currently, as the central budget office, have a Tableau data set that is out in pilot testing with all of the departments um, where it is showing by department, by fund, uh, by ledger category, so that's personnel costs, contracted materials and supplies. The piece that we, um, because we're also implementing a core data piece at the same time, which that is truing up that accounting structure, that beautiful graph that they showed you, to um, put in some accounting rules because uh, at the end of the day, we thought Workday was going to work a certain way. We turned on some some components of Workday in 2021 when we were, or 2020 when we were initiating it. Uh, we realized after six months that those components that would give us those answers to budget to actuals by program offer were breaking other very important pieces of the system. And we needed to focus on payroll and payroll implementation as our first major goal of fixing the Workday system. We decided to turn that program offer um, element off in Workday, understanding that we would need to do a different type of fix to, um, to integrate that. Pandemic came, we were focused on other things again, uh, especially our CFO and um, pandemic relief and getting um, funding out to communities as quick as possible. So about six months prior to actually to the audit starting, we, we uh, reintroduced the core data concept and we're implementing that now. So what I can tell you for fiscal year 2024, we can release a dashboard that's department, fund, ledger category, uh, we we've looked at it. We there's only about there's about an 80 percent um, agreement with uh, the accounting structure and program offers. So we can't report out on all of the program offers right now. Uh, the goal is going into fiscal year 2025 that we're going to uh, everyone in the departments are going to adhere to these core data rules, and that that then will um, be able to shift the dashboard from department fund ledger category all the way down to the program offer level um, and then be able to report out on that. Um, we also want to create some reports to put context around the information that you're receiving. So that's in progress as well. We actually just started the first one um, coming out of the budget office around the 2023 underspending so that there's consistency of data and then you're getting information. And so we plan to send that out uh, by the end of this week, which probably not Friday, but probably Monday um, going into next week. Um, so, so all of this is kind of in progress and we're figuring out. There's also some pieces that, um, not to, to get too technical, but the, the budget is a snapshot. The adopted budget is a snapshot and it's a snapshot of our accounting. And so sometimes what happens is, is people account at a much higher level, but when they get into the operations, they decide that they need to maybe break up that accounting. Say you have to report out on a grant and it requires you to do things a specific way. And so we have to create systems then as they create all that new accounting to get that back related to the adopted program offers. Or, you know, we don't have rules right now if the governor comes in and gives us $10 million to start a brand new program. 
we have to figure out how to get all of that back into the technical system so that we can report out to you. So that's all of the work that we're kind of doing behind the scenes right now to make those reports um, valuable and useful, both for the departments so that they don't have to do the internal reporting. We'd like to you know, make this kind of a one-stop shop so they can get all that information and also be, be able to release it to you in a format that makes sense. So glad to hear that. And um, just to follow up, once that dashboard is effective, is that will that be sort of a live dashboard? Or, um, and I know um, that it is um, can be misleading to be following things um, on a sort of day by day. But like if, if it's a live dashboard, I'm assuming there could be these quarterly snapshots. So right now, what we're anticipating is the first one to release towards the end of December, so it'll be a five month to six month snapshot. So we're downloading the data monthly, and you are correct, there's always variations, right? Someone realizes they posted a million dollars to the wrong cost center or the wrong cost object, and they need to fix that. Um, so we're downloading the data currently out of Workday into a Tableau data set. So it'll be, a, and then we, we take the audited data, so the closed period. That way we know that the data will is not going to change from period to period, right? So we're trying to get that consistency. Um, then what we had kind of visualized in our in our system is that then we would do kind of that three quarter mark or you know, um, uh, Seventy-five percent away through the year, release a, a third dashboard and then a year-end dashboard, at least to kick us off and get us into the routine of doing it. Um, I th ultimately, all of this information gets transferred into what we're calling a financial data mart that our IT partners have been working on. Um, that is going to be a more robust data system that's going to have some long-term implications. We'll overlay these report layers onto it and people will have access to that data. That data will be downloaded every day, but that's for the financial staff. So they can, they can be doing their work and then we would decide how publicly we would release that data and, and what would be the, the right timeframes to do that because you don't want the data to be misleading. Yeah, and I really appreciate the fact that we'd want to have it at a, a specific time because and, and with context um, because it can be misleading if it's like a week week by week and you see the big spikes, um, but that it's important for us to get it on a regular basis again for where we're seeing trends. Um, in the management response, it also talked about that there's um, for uh, piloting in 2024 with limited data um, with just some departments is um, the joint office and um, whatever budget category, um, the preschool for all, I guess that would be. County Human Services. Yeah. Um, <laughs> would, are those included in this sort of the limited data sets? The limited data set we were referring to is that we can't get down to the program offer level, that we need that time for the core data. So all departments, all funds, all ledger accounts will be reported out on. Okay, so we'd be able to see at least that piece. Correct. Um, look, so this November? Uh, we're hoping to do it by December, have five months of data. Like I said, right now it's sitting with the departments to make sure we didn't make any errors in the data sets, that we're not inappropriately showing something, that we're putting appropriate disclaimers on because we won't have the capacity to put the, the story around it right now. So we would really want to make sure that if there's any caveats or any um, areas that we, we need to make sure that we're identifying, that we're identifying that risk in the beginning. Thank you. Then uh, recommendation number two relates to um, developing a, pol a policy requiring departments to report when, intend when they intend to make expenditures in a way that 
the board defines as materially different from how they propose to spend funds in the program offers. Um, and again, um, I think it's very important for the board to stay at the sort of this, this higher level versus um, you know budget adjustments obviously um, at a non-material way happen all the time um, in order to run a, a large organization. And it looks like um, based on the management response that um, it's not, the recommendation again is September 30th, 2024. Um, I would really hope that we would have something before then again to as we're heading into another budget cycle to have at least a um, when there's something that's very materially different um, that we'd have some real-time reporting on that um, just also to help us inform this next budget cycle so I'm, I'm curious about um, I'm, not, I'm always aspiring to um, for the county to aspire to sort of do things before the, the final deadline which would be next actually couldn't would be next budget cycle so is there a possibility that we would have something that would be in place for this budget cycle so um, we're working with the CEO's office on what that policy could look like as you know we do have policies around budget expenditures we have Oregon budget law like you can't spend funding that you haven't gotten board approval for and so we're trying to reconcile those two things and what material difference is right now our instructions say if you if there is a significant deviation from your budget you need to be coming to the budget office you need to be coming to the CEO's office and then we need to be taking that to the chair both um, you know revenue adjustments downward or increases or if there's a significant policy shift and how you're proposing to run a program so let's say we did a startup program we said we were gonna hire 10 people the department comes back and says we can't hire those 10 people they don't exist uh, we need time with our HR system so we're going to in the interim you know use a provider to provide that service and then we're gonna reassess the um, you know the viability of the program right now all of BCC one says that that needs to come to the board reorganizations those types of things and so we we need to figure out where that's maybe not being forced or raised to the level of awareness for the board and then figure out how the policy reinforces that behavior because we we do have those rules in place right now, so we want to understand where it's it's not being enforced or where we where the board thinks that it's not occurring, and then at what that threshold level is. Because I really appreciate you saying, you know, it's a 3.5 billion dollar budget that we can't this we could spend, you know, every waking hour with the board making minor adjustments to the budget. That's not going to get you to the policy level discussions that you want to have. Yeah, and just a, a follow-on, because um, you said that it gets elevated to the chair. I mean, I would think that um, material level changes, um, just because, I mean, one of one of the responsibilities of the board is um, adopting the budget, and I think when we adopt the budget, we expect then, like, what, what is adopted um, is implemented, and I would hope that those, that information, if there is a material difference, flows through, again, for for transparency and also from a communication standpoint because it I, I think generates good questions about you know why why didn't something happen um you know do it does there need to be some sort of uh mitigation um again i think it generates good converse, good conversation and allows us all to be you know to know that the budget we all adopted is being implemented so again i would hope that we would um 
be um, moving forward with this recommendation in a way, in a material way, even though it's not required till that we haven't committed to September of 2024 that we do it earlier. And my last question again is a, is a timing, oh, not my last, two additional questions. Um, the third recommendation is that around the um, community budget um, advisory committees that they're being provided, they, they're provided with information sooner so that their comments can be um, addressed um, with the release of the chair's proposed budget. And I know this is always a challenge um, in public entities that have a community advisories committee to give them the information in time to actually take action. Um, but I really think it it um, coordinates it or it's aligned with this. It's better illustrated, I guess, say with this slide that talks about best practices with our community um, budget advisory groups where we engage in a lot of best practices about getting them set up, having them be diverse, giving, providing them information in a format that's easily understood, but then the place where we're not um, aligned with best practices start early enough that the public input meaningly, meaningfully influences decisions. And I think we all, like, if, if we create diverse community groups to provide um, feedback and to inform our thinking about the budget process, they actually, for it to have any impact, we need to get it early enough. And I think we're all better in a budget process which, in which we um, have that. We may not agree with it. It, it may for, you know, raise questions for us about um, maybe a, that, a belief we had or something that we were supporting. Um, so it's an important part of the process, but we, clearly it's not early enough to be providing meaningful influence. And so this would be another place where I would hope that um, even though there's a September 30th due date that we would ask in this year's budget process to, tr to try and um, aspire and have the, the budget, the, these community budget advisory groups provide us information and feedback early enough that we can, it will at least inform our, our thinking. So again, I, that's another timing uh, piece. And that's all my questions I had. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Beeson, did you have questions for? Just a quick, I'm assuming this two-year budget idea has has uh, percolated before. I'm wondering if you have any sort of thoughts. And in, in particular, the more we um, want real-time data and the more we want engagement, then the nicer a longer horizon for budgeting might make sense, I guess. Um, so I'm just wondering your your thoughts on yeah, I think I think that's always the the tension. I like to say we're always in budgeting, right? Like, I mean, I, there's a lot of job security in me saying that, um, so I might be a little bit biased. But um, even the state who's doing a biennial budget is calling sessions, right? Because they're having to adjust. They're having to. One of the things that's been particularly, and this is, I've been here for 21 years, so I'm going in the way back machine in the early 2000s is that we were adjusting the budget because we, the forecast was sh shifting so significantly where we were you know, losing our business income tax revenue, which is our most volatile source. And so we were having to do budget processes. We would adopt a budget and then four months later we were in a, you know, in a reduction mode because 
we couldn't anticipate the economic swings that were coming at us as fast as they were. And then also because our state is like one, the state partnership is one third of our budget as well. As those shifts were coming in, we were trying, you know, trying to respond in real time because we can't run a deficit budget. And so I, I think my perception is probably a little bit skewed for those being my, my baby years in the budget office is that uh, I would love a two-year cycle. We were in a three-month cycle at that point. And so recognizing the realities, um, also the shifting priorities of our community, we wouldn't have been able to forecast a pandemic and how quickly that was going to shift where we need to make investments. And so I, I really do think while we might say we have a two-year biennial budget, depending on the circumstances that, and the environment that we're in, we would have to adjust that to make sure that we're responding to the community in real time and the needs that are happening. Um, and so I would foresee that we would probably be in some kind of shorter budget cycle within that, that biennial budget cycle as well. And I don't know if that would be more work than less work. So it, it's um, hard to make that, that uh, assumption at the table right now, not having done it before. Thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner Myron. Thank you. Um, so I do have one question, which, uh, which is about, um, you know, that timeline that was outlined is in the fact that commissioners aren't um, privy to much of the budget process prior to um, release of the chair's proposed budget is where where it, we don't need to go into it now, but I'd like to know where the particular process is outlined and required, whether it's in code, whether it's in charter, whether it's statute, whether it's just sort of the way we've done it, um, because I, I think that process itself is not effective, and so I'm curious how it, where it lives so that we can think about how to address it. Sure, and I think uh, we can resend the, the memo that our esteemed county attorney has written in, uh, and send, I, I think it's a decade old now. It's, would you call it an oldie but goodie? It's updated regularly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but if I'll be happy that, to share that. Be great. Yes, and it's, most, it's in, mostly in state law, Commissioner. Okay. And then I, I think it's important uh, to, to recognize that there's steps in the budget process. So the first step is that the departments, to, as the experts in the areas that they're um, responsible for, we release that budget in mid-February, mid to late February, with their first set of kind of recommendations on how to approach their department's budget that comes not only with a transmittal letter that highlights and kind of is a, what I would like to call a roadmap to the department's budget, but then all those program offers are also released in February. So that's kind of the first data set. Last year we added a Tableau data set for that to make it easier and um, quicker to understand. So that's kind of that first snapshot of the budget. Then the next snapshot is the chair's proposed budget where she's actually balancing the budget across all of the departments and making that next set of decisions. So budget information is released uh, in February. It's just not the chair's proposed budget, but it is the core of the information that she will be evaluating as she proposes that budget. Thank you. Um, I, I, I don't know if Sura's still here, but I really appreciated um, the sort of frame, the broad framing of budgets and what they are about. Um, it said it tells, a budget tells the story of an organization, what's important to it, how it funds its mission, and how it provides value to the community. 
with we have more than 600 program offers ranging from 20,000 to more than 436 million dollars I, I feel that the way our budget the story of our organization here is it's fragmented not coordinated and there's no big picture or plan that puts it all together and there's not effective oversight or accountability or outcomes measures and I think that's been pretty clear and all of us have said it at one time or another who have been here for years um, uh, and so it we need the solutions and because of many of these issues and more um, I raised during the last budget process and had mentioned um, for years I, I was the only commissioner to vote no on the budget and at that time fellow commissioners in the chair voiced that you know the chair had not had the time to do things differently but things would change by next year and we would have a process to do the budget differently and to there I there has not been a process um, to my knowledge and so we're embarking on the fiscal year 25 budget and it's going to be much of the same and you know part of the biggest issue for me is that there continues to be no overarching plan that we are budgeting toward either at the departmental level or for the organization as a whole putting those pieces together and I that sort of ties into what Commissioner Brim Edwards had mentioned about like why across the board constraints aren't effective we can't it's not prioritizing it's not putting it into the big picture so it does these sort of generic constraints that aren't a good use of time maybe for our um, departments but the chair sort of coming up with the program offers behind closed doors with department heads you know you had mentioned that that was one of the things you were excited um, about coming in as chair was that you got to be part of that pre-January budget process um, but I, I hope you remember the frustration of not being chair during the pre-January budget process and how little commissioners were engaged in that process and how necessary it is to engage your fellow commissioners in that because if that's not happening it just it's continuing with the status quo and lack of transparency and you know the concept of program offers I've spoken to I brought in my prop I don't have it today the 600 plus program offers that we're voting on without outcomes measures without a big picture it's it doesn't make sense in an organization of 3.5 you know plus billion dollars a year um, of spending taxpayer money um, you know the process of CBACs and involving the community which we absolutely need to change our I feel that our community engagement is abhorrent um, and we need to do this and we could have been working on this um, up until this point and continuing um, the budget budget process itself needs an overhaul and yet we're sort of continuing with the same process which I find um, frustrating to say the least and you know I just I'm gonna reread a few of the talking points from my no vote on our budget well, Commissioner, I'd, we have two minutes, so if you've already, well, I, I just want to, do you have any questions for Christian? Is, is I will not have questions for Christian, but I appreciate um, you're giving me leeway because I had like six, every, everyone else took a lot more time and I've had no time and I'd like to make my comments about the budget. You can make comments, but we're going to be ending in, in a couple minutes. 
Thank you. So I've had frustrations I've expressed throughout the process this year, previous years. Christian, you can, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Christian. I grappled with whether to support the budget because there are some great individual programs and there's always pressure to go along to get along. But I can't do it in good conscience when year after year we succeed in spending record amounts of money but fail to make a plan, God bless you, or measure meaningful progress towards solving the problems we face. Many people who are starting to understand what the county does and what a central role we play in addressing our most pressing issues, skyrocketing fentanyl and meth use, and there's still not a plan that I've seen around that since the budget, homelessness, mental health, public safety. We have a $3.5 billion budget with more than $250 million spent on homeless services alone, and things get worse. We need to be more transparent about our spending and be held accountable. But the process makes that very challenging for the public and for us as stewards of public money. We need the actual plan defining our objectives, making priorities, and measuring outcomes over time. The community depends on us for this. It's literally our job. But we underspend funds and we can't follow the money, know whether what we're doing works. And we learned today those massive disconnects um, between planning and actual expenditure. The budget accomplishes some good things for some people because it's just continuation of that status quo. But does it make a difference in our crises and make policy change? No. We have the money, we have tons of it, and we literally were unable to spend it all. Heard today, $49 million underspent funds. And I hear the voices of so many saying be practical and be patient. We go home to a roof over our heads, however, and I see my patients in the ER and the patients, the people I provide care to on the street. I see them suffering and dying, and I can't forget them. And then I see this budget, the story of our mission, supposedly, for what the county does, and I can't accept it. So I am frustrated that there has not been a process up to this point. I am frustrated that for changing how we budget. Um, I am frustrated that it is always reactive in the way we address these big issues. Um, I hope something can be done because I, before adoption of the fiscal year 25 budget, because um, if it's done the same way, um, we are gonna have the same results. So thank you. Thank you. So I would just say, I would just remind this board, especially board members who have been here, Commissioner Ryan, for a long time, state law requires that the commission cannot consider budget items until the chair's budget is released. It has to be a public process. It has to involve um, the community as a chance to be informed in the budget. So by state law, the commission cannot participate in the budget process until the chair's budget is released. That, that is the law. And so you ask a question. No, um, so that so so I I wanted to share that we're already over time, Commissioner. Well, you, um, so you just so said something so and I had a question so, about so it. So you can follow up with that after the meeting. I just want to say that because we have to, you know, because there is a perception that there is, you know, a lack of of engagement and inclusion, and some of it is because we need to have a public process. We need to be following the law so that so that the so that the the um, 
The process is felt that the executive is working with the department, the executive is working with the community, the executive was working with the budget team to create a budget that is then put forward for both consumption for the Board of County Commissioners as well as the public as a whole to then participate in that project. Where do you think the process. board fits in fits into that equation? Because the so board isn't mentioned at all in that I, sort of I, process. I, We're I just said the board five times. The board had the board engages with the process once the chair's budget is released. That about is about policy. That is a. St I'm I'm just talking about budget. I'm not talking about policy right now. So. So I want to be very clear for the record and for the public, for folks who are listening to this meeting, that, that the way that the structure is set up is that the executor, the executive of the county creates a budget in partnership with the team, the departments, the budget office, and the community engagement. And then that is released, and then it is Put forward. We will all take part. We all have taken part in that budget. Um, I think cycle. there's a mischaracterization. And, excuse it's me, important. Commissioner Myron. You're I am speaking things to the public that aren't accurate, and I would like to respond. And no, you're not giving me the opportunity. Commissioner Myron, you I had do? your you you spoke for five minutes not to respond Just, to you, Commissioner. Saying inaccurate commissioner, things, Commissioner. I let you speak. No. So, you didn't. I actually did. You spoke your entire for a few minutes. Okay, you and are without being very disrespectful right now. I I let you respectfully, speak. Respectfully, you're the one being disrespectful. Okay, Commissioner Myron. You know what? This is you. You have a very hard time letting someone speak without interruption, and and I'm not going to because have you it. said you wouldn't Again, let me I'm, speak. Commissioner Myron, you I literally can't. You're, word. you're incapable of letting someone speak without interruption. That is not how these meetings are going to go. All right. Seriously, so, you are. I, to my point, I've never again, experienced someone being okay. so disrespectful to someone on their board. But go Commissioner ahead. Commissioner Myron, I'm not say you, word. I cannot get a sentence out without you interrupting. This is ridiculous. This because is ridiculous. You're lying to the public. Oh my gosh, Commissioner Myron, you can, you have to restrain yourself i am sorry you have to show more respect to you i i you were able to give to repeat your entire budget statement that's i fine. didn't repeat my entire budget okay. statement you say things that are untrue Mr. and Myron. how should i let those stand Mr. Myron, we are gonna i'm gonna end this meeting because i literally cannot get please end it. with you interrupting <laughs> me this is this is a ridiculous situation um we are not meeting because of the holiday weekend we will be returning um, on Tuesday morning, look forward to seeing everyone that. With that, we are adjourned.